Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast, episode 55. Welcome to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast with your host, Jack Mountain Bushcraft School founder and master main guide, Tim Smith. I'm your host, Tim Smith. I'm a registered master main guide, and in 1999, I founded the Jack Mountain Bushcraft School. We help people become more skilled, more knowledgeable, more experienced, and more confident outdoors by using traditional skills, a few simple tools, and field-based experience. Whether you're looking to go from city slicker to competent outdoor professional, want to experience a remote expedition, or just want to learn a few new outdoor skills, we've got you covered. You can check out the show notes to this and all of our podcasts at blog.jackmtn.com. When you're there, click on the podcast button. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Lastly, the best way to keep up with our programs and trips is to join our email newsletter. And you can do that at jmbnews.com. Welcome back to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. We are sitting in my kitchen today and I am joined by the one, the only... Working class woodsman, also known as Ed Butler, with how many alias did you were you just telling me you had on the dark web? Uh, it's, it's up to seven now. <laughs> the latest one is uh, WCW actually stands for White Collar Woodsman. Nice. People that seem to think I have money or something. I, I like just, it. I just got that the other day, so there's, an, there's seven now. I'm yeah. picturing you like uh, <laughs> hip waiters and a tuxedo. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Uh, yeah, somebody hit me with that the other day, and I'm like, I don't know where you're coming from. I kind of, I think it's kind of cool. Yeah. No, it doesn't stand for that. Alter ego, though. Like, I mean, next Halloween's already taken care of. Right, exactly. White collar <laughs> woodsman. I just got to figure out what that is. <laughs> so, anyway. Yeah, so we have, uh, I'm, I know we recorded one, was it June? No, was actually, it, our uh, last one was, no, um... It was at your land up in Maine. I yeah. remember I was just off a course or the river or somewhere. It had to have been after that because I was down in North Carolina in June. It was probably like August-ish, was it? Uh, okay. July or August, but it was a while ago. Yeah. Yeah, it was quite a while ago, actually. It was before before hunting season, so let's say it was July. Okay. Before you got super busy. I yeah. have seen Ed like twice in passing because uh, you're working like 18-hour days as everybody's trying to get their places yep. ready for the winter. and yeah. It's been an exceptionally busy year in the heating business, um, trying to tie up loose ends. Of course, every year, and I'm sure you, you deal with it, it's growing pains. You know, every year you get a little bigger and you've you got new problems and you're trying to take care well, of it. Why were you looking at my waistline when you said that? I, it's, it's a, <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. Um, but, uh, they, um, but, you know, every year you just you, you kind of develop new problems and you're still trying to deal with the old problems. And not that they're problems, but they're, you know, they're things you got to deal with. So. It's always. It seems like every year gets busier and busier and busier. Yeah. And this year has been exceptional. Like it was pretty much from September first right up until probably the last week of October. I worked seven days a week um, doing installs and repairs and stuff like that. And then took a little spell, went down to North Carolina, came back, and got right back into it. And it's just been out straight. Huh. It's it's <clears throat> it's kind of it's uh, it's it's getting it's getting tough. But it's good. We're getting through it. You know, it's typical. It's just New England. Yeah, yeah. It's just been a busy, and I, I wonder about that too, if it's me that thinks it gets busier every year, or if there's actually more stuff to do every year. I think or, I'm just slowing down. Yeah, or if my tolerance for being busy decreases every year. Well, I know my tolerance decreases, because every year I get more and more ornery. Right. Or what do we say, disgruntled, yeah. which is the opposite of gruntle. Opposite of gruntled. Opposite of gruntled. Disgruntled so, is the opposite of gruntled. I used to be gruntled. 
Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm very dis. <laughs> I'm very I dis. love words like that. That like we only use disgruntled, right? No one ever uses gruntled anymore. Probably since 1800. No. But I, no. But yeah, it, when you take away like the prefix or the suffix, it changes it to the opposite. I always like that. That's where I get lost. Yeah. yeah I didn't do. I, I, I didn't do good in that class. Right. Like the. Uh, <laughs> You know, I met a guy who was talking about refurbishing old axes, and I was like, I just like to furbish them. I don't want to refurbish anything. Like, give me something to furbish. Yeah, furbish. <laughs> I got to start using that. I got to furbish it. Exactly. Um, yeah, so hunting season, did you get out at all? Well, uh, no. Yes, I did. Um, we had the main bear season, which was great. Had a great time up there. Had a, Harvested a really nice bear, 342. Um, but I'm convinced that that bear was so magnificent that, that his spirit has cursed me huh. from the time I pulled that trigger. I'm convinced because it had my, it's done nothing, but I've had problems. It's just like, it's been one thing after another. So every time I have a screw up or every time something goes wrong, it's like, yeah, he's still, he's still, he's still there. He's getting me. The night that we ate it, remember the night we ate his heart? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually had nightmares that I had trigonosis. I woke up, my wife heard me waking up screaming in the back of the van. Nice. Yeah. Well, so. not nice, but uh, that's So, uh, that's I, I think he kind of handed my head. You know, he's, he's getting the last laugh, but I'm going to stick it out, and when he's done with me, maybe I'll get back to hunting. Um, but no, uh, New Hampshire bear season was unsuccessful. And for the main season, you were up in the Ziskahas country? Yeah, up by, uh, uh, yes, Bose, up by Bosebuck, up by, um, oh God, what's the other, Wilson Mills, yeah. that area? Yeah. yeah. Um, way up, and we were like 23 miles off the road. And up there, it's nice because it's, it's, I mean, it's nothing but boondocks. It's nothing but country. You know, those old logging roads. Yeah, sure. Paper, paper company roads now. Um, still, it's still great. There's still tons and tons of wildlife up there. They manage that section of Maine differently than the northern section. Like, they limit the number of people that come in. It's not like yep. going into the North Maine woods where you can just pay the fee and get a pass. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not 100% sure how that works. It was just how it was set up originally. Um, like, there are you, the, the people that own property behind a specific... Now, you anyone can walk through there. Right, it's just it's, motorized vehicles. Absolutely. I think that's the same with the North Maine woods. Like, there's so. nobody on the... Like on the Allagash, there are rangers who will check your paperwork. With. Yeah. If I hop in the boat on the Aroostook and pull up into the North Main Woods, no, there's nobody there. Like, right. There's not like there's a, yeah. a, a gate or anything. Like, for instance, you could, you know, you could get on a mountain bike and you could ride all those roads, do all the fly fishing. I mean, there's nothing private about it. You just can't drive through that the right. one particular gate, which it's kind of cool because it, that's, why it's, that's why it's the way it is. Yeah. You know, it's not being infiltrated with... Um, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, it's like, you know, every time I go fishing, I like Winnipesaukee. It's like... Geez, I wish I had a camp right over there, but oh, that's right. There's a seventeen point eight million dollar house there, so that's probably why I don't. <laughs> yeah. But I still get to fish in the lake, right? And that's the. Uh, and that's just. I yeah. mean, that was the, the 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 big rallying cry with when Plum Creek's trying to develop the Greenville Moosehead Lake region was don't turn it into another Winnipesaukee. Yeah. Right. Yeah. With I mean, we all would love to have the the lone house on the remote lake, the lone cabin, right? But but they'll never be just one. Well, that's a problem. It's just like how many you know you can't make any more wilderness. I mean, it's just right. we're, we're slowly in. Maybe you know the statistics, but uh, I know my friend Rick does. But every time you put a house, the, the carbon, and every, every time you put a dwelling or a house, you lose four acres of wilderness. I don't know. Something like that. Um, and on the lake, you think about it, you know, the, the people that want to, um, they come up here to listen to the loons and, you know, enjoy <laughs> the wildlife. Listen to the jet skis. And, yeah. 
and they destroy, you know, by taking away all that habitat and, you know, messing with the ecosystem, you end up ruining, you destroy what you came for there in the first place. Right. I, I always like to think of it, I, when I was a kid, there was a, uh, like a little field and we'd always see deer yeah. running across it. And then they, yeah. you know, paved it, put up a bunch of subdivisions and called it the deer run subdivision, right? So yeah. we name it after the thing that it used to be, but it's not that anymore. Yeah. It's kind of like Manhattan. It's like, you know, you never even know you're on the ocean. Right. That was some of the most beautiful ocean, for, you know, but now it's they've just isolated why they went there in the first place. To me, maybe I'm, mis- I mean, maybe I'm missing something. But. Yeah. If you read the, like the, the early settlers to, to the New York City area, right? Yeah. This massive river and estuary. Like, oh, yeah. you could feed Oysters. yourself like probably an hour a week of like setting a net. There were so many fish and yep. so many, there's just so much stuff. And we've and, paved the entire thing. Yeah. And now it's Flat just net. a big, you know, ecological black spot on the planet if you look at the aerial view of that you know like a satellite photo of new york it's just it's amazing you still got that central park area but you yeah. can see where it must have been a beautiful yeah. wildlife area who's the guy i think mclean aj mclean the old fishing writer field and stream years ago oh yeah i got oh, a yeah. somebody gave me a book of his years ago and there was a great little essay story about some guy it's in like i don't know 1600 or something who's on Manhattan, you know, and it was just like, there was like a tiny little village and the rest of it was just woods. Yeah. But it's just a great story. And they just talked about, you know, how thick the fish were. And yeah, it was just wild, you know, the salmon. I mean, it was just wild, wild country. It must've been, um, but we're slowly doing that to the rest. You know, every year we just encroach a little more and a little more everywhere. Yeah. There's nowhere left to go. And speaking of deer, before I forget it on the walk down here, you had two deer this morning across your driveway. Huh? Yep. From this morning. I've been meaning to put in a toll booth there. Yeah, because well. can't let those guys get by for free. <laughs> yeah, it's a couple of look like a couple of small does, but um, but so we're lucky around here. The wildlife is still uh, pretty abundant, but you know, I you know every like you say every year, like now there's this. I hate to say a boom, but there's a lot of new construction going on. Yeah, and um, like one of the places we used to hunt down off of uh, Cotton Valley is now I think there's thirty. I don't know how many houses are in there, but you couldn't even be think about hunting down there. Mm-hmm. It used to be really good. So, but like you say, up in um, up in Maine, you know, we still go up there, and it seems like we're in. You might as well be in Alaska. But I mean, at what point will it will that be gone? Right. You know, and at some point, who knows? They, I mean, the people that own the property rights want to change all the rules so that they can develop. Yeah. I mean, that's an ongoing legal struggle for the for the state. You know the. Some of the landowners bought this timber country for pennies on the acre, and now they want to turn around and develop it so they can maximize their investment. And, you know, capitalism, you can't blame them for wanting to do that, but it will totally change the face of the of the region. Well, and here's where, here's where I get a little confused, especially like we were just talking about the area up in Wilson Mills, Bozebuck area. Um, you know, because... That all that land used to be owned by the paper companies, right? And I think it was. I think the it would take them twenty years to to actually get their money back on a piece of land. I, I mean, was well. I've talked to a guy who works for one of the big companies. Yep. And they said back in the day, the foresters would they'd get the return on the land. I think eighty years. Oh God! Then they cut it down to forty. But yeah. now, since banks own it, they want to do it every ten. See, that's the thing. So it's like, but that's not. It's like economics versus ecology. That's not how the forest grows. It's not going to work that way, especially when you leave that kind of slash behind. Right. And you know, you've taken out all the old growth. All the watersheds are gone for the right. most part. But so that's what's concerning is like if you've got these what used to be owned by the you know the old paper companies. I want to call them good old boys for the lack of a better. Yeah, Great Northern. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That was just a. That was. A, for, you know, they, I mean, those companies, 
you know, that caused a lot of problems, you know, rerouting, dynamiting rivers and all that stuff. But I mean, whatever, that's, that's another issue. But the point is now they were a lot more patient. They would wait for their money. But these investment companies that own the land now, what's going to happen when they're not seeing their money after 10 years? I mean, they're going to want to get their money back on that land. So what's going to happen with the land? Yeah, they want to change the zoning and sell it as billionaires recreational paradise yeah they want to turn it into montana exactly movie stars buy it and then put up no trespassing signs and barbed wire and you know you you think there might be a chairlift on katahdin at some point (laughs) gondola (laughs) they'll turn katahdin uh, to washington but you think about it um uh you you mean you can't stop and what what concerns what i think about maybe i'm overthinking it but when when uh, a big corporation like that who has a lot of influence let's say politically get certain people elected into certain offices, that's how those things get changed. You right. know, like you get to a certain point where you've been protecting this certain part for years and years and years, and all of a sudden, well, you know, well, we need this, I'll give you this, and then that's how that stuff gets just pushed around and lost. Right. They you just know? buy the the politicians are the low-hanging fruit, and they just get bought, yeah. essentially. That's, I mean, it's happened in cut. northern Maine. The Irving brothers of Irving oil fame want to, do a mountaintop removal gold mine like 30 miles from from Masardis. Pickett Mountain. In the North Main Woods. Was that the Pickett Mountain? Uh, nope, that's the other one. Okay. Oh, okay, so there's two, <laughs> the, yeah. I think, is it Bald Mountain? I can't remember. But it's right at the headwaters of the Fish River. So oh, there's geez. some pushback against it. You know, one of the last native uh, brook trout um, yeah. strongholds in the contiguous United States. And they want to... And it's always the same thing with the mining operations, right? They always promise you that it's going to bring jobs, which it never does. Well, it, it, and it's so mechanized. And then they always promise that, oh, nothing, you know, the all the tailings and all will be taken care of. And they never are. No. And it's funny how, because the one I was, the Pickett Mountain Purchase is the one I was talking about. That's the one that's a little closer to our property. Right. Um, they were talking about how, like, there's certain regulations that don't, like, exploratory mining, there aren't as many regulations for that. Right. As, as like if they were going to go in and mine. So you wonder what they're doing now. But, you know, they spent millions of dollars on that property. There's, they're going to go in and get their, they're going to make their money somehow. Right. And like every time something like that happens, like you say, it's one more piece of wilderness that's gone. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. You, it's, you can hold it off you know, and you can fight it, I suppose. But eventually, it's, I don't want to sound grim or, or like doomsday, but eventually it's going to be gone. Yeah. So it's important that, you know, we... Do everything you can to prevent that, but I don't know. I don't have the answer. I don't have the answer either. I got a lot of questions, though. Yeah. Like, 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 where is the beef? <laughs> Who uh, let the man. dogs out? Uh, uh, <laughs> where are they growing? Yeah, that's another story. It is amazing how uh, when you look back and you read, like, like the cattle industry, and I don't want to offend anyone that's in the cattle industry, but it's like, you know, it's like, it, that's that's had a big impact on, on how we live. Yeah, you know, overall, for you sure. Know, you think about it, um, and especially being in like a you know a, a state with a history of forestry and not a history of grazing. Right. You think about, you know, I've I've lived in Texas. I went to graduate school in Texas, and in Texas, because it's a history of grazing, like you can't walk on someone else's land. You know, if you wanted to go hunt or you wanted to go explore the country, you know, yeah. you better be on public land, and there isn't much of it. Because if someone was out, you know, if you have cows out there and someone's just walking along or riding along, they're probably going to 
you know, the idea is they would steal your cows. Yeah. So the beauty of this part of the world where it's forestry, like nobody, it would take a pretty big mechanized industry to steal big trees. Yeah. So no one cared and they just said, go ahead and walk across it. Just don't, you know, don't cut anything standing. That's funny. You're right though. That is how all that, because in, up in New England, you know, we have, we can pretty much go anywhere. Right. I mean, it, it you know, again, more and more property gets posted and stuff, but still, by compared to the rest of the country, we're pretty free, free range. Yeah, for sure. And the the further north you go, the more free range you can be. Yes. Yep. You know, as everybody moves, everybody wants their house, you know, in southern Maine or in the Lakes region in New Hampshire, people move up here from Boston or New York metro areas mm-hmm. and then post it. So then, yeah. So it's almost yeah. you know we're almost relegated to places that aren't as popular mm-hmm. because if people don't uh, envision their you know the LL Bean cover sort of cabin in the woods, um, if it's just a you know a rural area then yeah. they don't want to be there, then we still have free access to it. Yeah, I wonder how many of those uh, little rustic cabins are, are left out there. <laughs> it's funny, you and me both yeah. uh, spending you know fifty years in this region. Yeah. Uh, as a kid, I remember there weren't massive houses on the lakes. And now it's, you know, some old camp, some old, like, uninsulated shack, basically. I mean, some of them were pretty nice. They were three-season homes, for sure. But they, yeah. uh, you know, now they're being bought up and... Leveled. Leveled. So you yeah. buy a lakefront cabin, totally demolish the cabin, build a 6,000-square-foot third home there. Yeah. And that's, you know, it is what it is. Yeah, it's very typical for these what we call nine bathroom homes to go up, and I don't know how they squeeze them in. Yeah, you know, and they have to make them taller to get the you know. It's like, well, it's got to be six thousand feet, so you got to make them three stories. But nobody, nobody lives in them. You know, no, it's it's I like know. a third home, fourth home, and it's it's always interesting to me about how certain parts of the country people just make so much money compared to other parts of the country. Like you think about. You know, I talk to people who work in, say, New York City or something, and the cost of living is so high. Someone's yeah. a banker in New York City. Like, they make so much money mm-hmm. that if they're able to, you know, get a place somewhere else, it's the just the, the numbers are staggering. And it's relative because um, it's funny. I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who, who there was a guy down somewhere down in Florida, um, paid like $360,000 for a new boat. 360000 That's it? Yeah. Is it a dinghy or something? No, it's a big dinghy. <laughs> it's got like two 350s on it or something. And I'm thinking, 360, man. 360. It's like, I couldn't imagine. Just, and that's a boat. And he's already got He's already got So I get to my point is, it's like what, I mean, it's it's what people think is a lot of money to some is just isn't to Right. Some. It's just crazy. It's yeah. hard to get. I can't get my head around it half the time, but. And I think, I mean, our we live in a, a, a nice part of the country, but if you go to somewhere, you know, Alabama or, or places lower socioeconomic, they would think that we're millionaires for the... Well, you, you, yeah, yeah. I mean, I got a buddy out in Illinois who thinks, he's the one that called me the white, white-collar woodsman because I have a, <laughs> I, I have a, I drive around in a new service cargo van. It's like, yeah, yeah you're a white-collar woodsman. I'm like, man, I don't know. Not a lot of white-collar guys driving cargo vans right. that I know of. Um, I have my street cred because I have uh, (laughs) one of my taillights on my pickup truck fell off two years ago and I had some orange duct tape in the truck that day. And so I just taped it back on and yeah, the tape's still there. It's like uh, going on two, (laughs) two plus years and I haven't. You're right. I noticed that actually. (laughs) But I haven't, uh, you know, I never think about it until I'm looking at the truck and I just have to buy a new, what happened was I was, you know, driving Woods Roads. 
I think there was yeah. there's three holes to screw it in, yeah. and they all cracked and broke. Yeah. So I just, but it still works. So I guess if it's not broken, I'm not going to fix it. That's a good policy, I think. But uh, anyway, the um, so yeah, that's uh, I don't know. What so back to the whole uh, the hunting? Uh, I guess we we got to come full circle at some point. But oh yeah, so I guess without without any land left, we'd have a hard time going hunting. But as far as the hunting season goes, um. Yeah, I struggled through deer season unsuccessfully. Uh, missed a uh, had two chances at a really nice ten point buck. Blew blew both those opportunities. Not ready, you know, just too busy. Didn't have time. Not thinking. And end at the end of the day, I didn't make it happen. So it's been a struggle. It's been a struggle. But um, overall, um, a lot of the guys around the area have done really well. Been some nice bucks harvested. Nice. Yeah. There's some concern about the natural food that's on the ground, though, because there's not an acorn or a beech nut to be found. Mm-hmm. Um, so the deer were in different food patterns. It's like they were into the green grass. I mean, they're already eating the arborvitaes, you know, which you don't see them doing that until, like, March, you know, usually. Yeah. So It was a cold early fall. Yeah. And, the ground, you know, we had this, this, the, the, the ground cover came. I mean, we had, we've had snow on the ground for a month. Yeah. Which is I, – I can't remember – well, first of all, it was the coldest Thanksgiving I can ever remember. Yeah. It was like 12 below with the wind. Yeah. I had a froze, I had a customer with a frozen pipe. That never happens. But um, um, the first hunting season I can remember where we had pretty much snow the whole season, um, which was very beneficial to, uh, for, in a lot of ways. First off, it makes for, uh, it doesn't, it makes for um, no lost hunters, you know. <laughs> 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 they can, you don't you don't have a lot of lost hunters uh, when uh, when there's snow on the ground because they follow their tracks back out. But uh, it also, if you wound a deer, you, you, it's easy to follow the blood trail. And also, you can figure out, you know, if it snowed last night, like this morning, like it snowed last night, so I know those deer crossed your driveway this morning. Right, it lets you know when the animals yeah. were moving if you keep yeah. track of the weather. So I mean, I was persistent, at, like, and I was in this new area, and uh, the snow actually helped me pin down their 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 patterns as to where they're going. I was out yesterday. We went squirrel hunting this weekend with uh, Randy, Randy Rodko there. She got a few couple squirrels, and I uh, went out again yesterday to try to get a rabbit, but I ended up going further into the down the river on the edge, and I found just an abundance of tear trails. It's just amazing. But I wouldn't know it if there wasn't snow on the ground necessarily. Right. And I know all that activity is probably within the last week. Actually, a great part of the uh, that activity was probably um, – what day was it? Uh, Saturday, because it warmed up to like 40, 42. Right. Yep. And all the snow got soft, so that whatever fresh tracks had to have been made after the snow was soft. Mm-hmm. So um, the snow is very beneficial to, to you know to kind of keep track of where the animals are. But um, anyway, that's all part of it. Yeah. So leading into winter, I've seen, I think I've seen like three guys out ice fishing already. A lot of guys ice fishing, uh, yeah. Um, I'm thinking about, we've got, uh, obviously I like the old non mechanized mm-hmm. stuff for yep. winter. So yep. I will often chip holes with an ice chisel and I've got a hand auger, a but spud, a spud. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> with a spud. Yeah. Uh, Which is a chisel. Yeah. For the, but I'm just thinking about, um, thinking about different augers, you know, as the ice gets deeper and, and we'll, we're doing a trip up to Northern Quebec this year and we always will chip the holes up there to set a net under the ice with a spud. And sometimes the ice is like four feet deep yeah. or well, four feet thick. Yeah. So what do you use for a chip for an auger when you go out? Well, I've got a Jiffy gas powered, um, auger, which I've got a love hate relationship with it. Um, 
Yeah, mine's pretty dependable. Uh, and nothing against Jiffy. But the problem with ga- anything gas now, it's like if you leave gas for six months or a year, it, it destroys Because of the ethanol? Yeah, because of the ethanol. And I put in the Startron. But so you got to remember to drain it out and, and this and that. Now, I'm pretty, pretty lucky. But my friend Al has a propane-fired Jiffy. And it has less power, but it it's flawless. Huh. So, you know, you sacrifice a little power, but it'll always start. And it's smooth. Um, but it's, you know, it is, you're never going to get the power out of it that you will a gas one. Mm-hmm. Or maybe the new ones, I don't, maybe I shouldn't say that. But also, too, a lot of guys, and my, my buddy Mike has, has got one, is um, they're using the, you know, the big heavy-duty cordless drills. Right, yeah, I've seen those. They work slick. Huh. Amazing. And you know, it's you get, nice because you don't have to go buy another motor, that's right? That's the thing. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm a tradesman. I got three cordless drills, um, you know, and I've got 10 of those 18-volt batteries. So, I mean, it, it, that's a good uh, that's a good alternative. Um, the hand augers work pretty good, too. They make some good hand augers. Yeah, and those yeah. are light. Yeah. Um, I'm, like, I'm kind of like you. It's like the less moving parts, the better. Because I just know everything's going to break. <laughs> Okay, and it'll up, always yeah. break right when I don't want it to. Trust me, you don't want to toboggan one of those jiffy ice augers out on a lake. I mean, if you're on an expedition like what you do, yeah, yeah. it's not going to work. But you could get by with one of those little um, Mora. Uh, well, there's a couple other ones. I think Eskimo makes them. But they, they, they burn right through. Yeah, yeah. I've got, we've got uh, two yeah. of them, actually. Yeah, those work slick. Um, that's a good, good way to do it. Um, but the old days of chiseling through four feet of ice with a... I mean, when we were kids, we were out there with an axe. Yeah. So you start out with like a six foot hole, and, and it's by like the time you get to the down pyramid, yeah, by the time you, exactly <laughs> by the time you're done, you can barely get a you know small white. You get like a hole about three inches around at the bottom, yeah, and you're soaking wet because <laughs> you've been chopping through water and ice. So so the day's over. Yeah. I mean, you're standing there. It's the funniest thing because you know nobody dressed right. You're all wearing cotton, and you're getting soaked from from chipping the hole. Yeah. So you stop. You see, you start fishing. You stop moving. You freeze instantly. I remember as a kid, you could always <laughs> tell like something about the 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 other kids' households. Like when you go to school, because everybody had rubber boots that mm-hmm. weren't insulated, mm-hmm. and you'd wear your cotton socks inside of a, and a, a plastic bread bag over your. Perfect. So you'd always be able to oh like oh they're a they're a Wonder Bread family and oh look at the who's the kid with the seven grain organic <laughs> oh look at look who's eating JJ Ness <laughs> must be nice exactly oh, yeah well it was definitely a fat I mean it was kind of a like you say, fashion statement. You could tell by the loaves of bread, you know, what, whether that family had money or not. Right, and it wasn't, you know, you didn't have uh, fancy but, socks. You had fancy bread bags. Yeah, see, I use paper bags. <laughs> so, you know, that's anyway. Yeah, it never, never worked. But yeah, the old days of those green pack boots with yes. cotton socks. Green pack boots. You were good for fifteen minutes. And if, you, if the bus didn't come, you had frostbite. Yeah, oh yeah. Oh man, those things were brutal. It was. Just, I just remember being so cold as a kid. And and, <sighs> and these days, like if I go out, you know, long winter trip, right? I'm warm the whole. Like I don't, yeah. I don't get cold anymore. I mean, if you stand still and it's really cold for too long, you'll get cold. But like yeah. I just remember every day as a kid being so cold, and it's just you know with the right stuff and a little bit of yeah. know how, it's. Those well, those, days are over. those pack boots, you know, the felt line. Remember when they first come out? They call them snow machine boots, but they all they were just a felt line boot. Those things were like the those were just God's gift to yeah. any kid. Yes. And um, now, I mean, there's this hunt. I mean, there's hundreds of products out there, but anything you know, anything with a good felt thermal insulated liner is the way to go because you pull the liners out and dry them. Exactly. That's the like for our winter expeditions. Yeah. Like that's the. Yep. You have to be able to do that because yeah. if you can't, you're gonna you're gonna lose your feet. Everybody years ago would show up with like leather 
boots. And, oh, these are the boots I wore all winter. And then they're soaked, and then it takes them 10 days to dry out. If you're going home at the end of the day, fine. Yeah, you know, exactly. And you, hopefully you do. Yeah. But, like, when I used to ice climb, there were guys that would show up with, we call them, uh, uh, what do we call them? A few things, but they would just they would hot dog these sport routes, you know, cragging and stuff. But they would they would they would chinking glasses at six o'clock, you know, in the restaurants. Yeah. But the guys who were out there mountaineering wouldn't be caught dead in those leather boots because one night with those things. Yeah. And you're done. You're done. Yeah. You got to be able to pull those liners out. Wear them. I've, I've worn mine in my sleeping bag mm-hmm. to dry them out. And you wake up, you basically, I mean, the boots themselves, the plastic boots, doesn't matter. You just bang the ice out of them. Yeah. Um. But like in your case, you're probably you must have some kind of muckler. I don't know what you guys are running for boots. Yeah, I got two pairs. I got a rubber uh, boot with a felt liner, and then yep. a muckluck with a felt liner. Yeah. So it depends same on the concept. If it's colder than about five or ten degrees, I'll wear the muckluck, and if it's warmer, I'll wear the rubber. I'll often because I'm lazy. We'll often just wear the rubber boots and just dry them out at night. Yeah, that's the thing. At the, the it'll just and yeah yeah keep the moisture. But definitely. So any what here's a good question for you. So you know guys are going out uh, recreating in the winter time. What level of sort of skill or knowledge do you figure somebody needs to have in order to be safe? And is it the same if they're going out ice fishing versus going out snowmobiling? I know what I think on the subject, but I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on it. Well, all of it. Yeah, you got to know everything. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, no one no one does, but. It depends on the level. In other words, as soon as you say ice fishing or snow machining, the first thing I think of is going through the ice. Right. So, uh, you know, I don't know. It, it short, bar, short of that, okay, say you're out on a, you know, you're way out in the middle of nowhere on a snow machine and you break down. you got to have, you know, um, I w- you know, you got to have the, the ability to build a fire, first off. And I don't think of all the people, I mean, how many people actually have fire-making uh, you know, when they go out snowmobiling or uh, ice fishing, how many people actually have fire making ability with them? As much as a Bic lighter, I think very few. Like, what do you got on you right now? Uh, oh, so we just crashed our car. We just we just rolled our car over on the way to the airport, and we're not we got to spend the night. How are you going to light a fire? Yeah, cigarette lighter in the car, right there. I won't leave home without this. <laughs> it's a good thing to have. And, and I think there's a lot of bad information, like on the web. I've yeah. seen, oh, people will say, oh, lighters won't work if it's cold. Like, yes, they will. Well, we, we've talked about this before, I think. Butane. Yeah. They won't work. Well, butane boils at 32 degrees. So if it's 32 degrees or colder, it's just going to sit there like water. But if you put it in, warm it up with your hand, put it under your armpit, take it at whatever, it'll, it'll work. You just have to warm it up. Right, and I've seen, and I don't know the science behind it, but I've seen guys like, hey, it's forty below, and they're lighting a sick, they're lighting a smoke with a. It's been in their lighter. pocket. Yeah, yeah. If so, you leave, if you leave it outside, or leave it in your car, and you grab, it, oh, the, the lighter doesn't work, and you throw it down, you know, you throw it on the seat or whatever, and all of a sudden, after the car is warmed up, you pick it up. Oh, now it's working. Well, that's nice. Put it back in your pocket. But it's one of those things that people who don't know any better and don't know why will keep repeating that, like, oh, geez, don't bring a yeah. lighter with you in the winter because you're going to freeze to death and die. Like, well, ideally, no, yeah. You're you're not. Yeah, I mean, if you're out, you know, I mean, being a, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, you should have, if you're out any extended period of time in in the woods in the winter, you should have three forms of making, you know, three sources of making fire, waterproof matches, lighter, and whatever your go-to is, flint and steel, whatever, but whatever your hobby is, I should say. Yeah. But, I mean, at least the minimal, a Bic lighter, they're 99 cents at 7-Eleven, and um, they work for, I mean, I carry the same one around for two or three years at a time. Well, I I don't smoke. 
I want to get a Bic lighter, but I, you know, I can't afford the fancy Bic I get brand name. I, I get the the cheap knockoff, the Scripto or scripto? something. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I just got one of the, I just got one of those for a Christmas present. Nice, the Scripto. Yeah, the yeah. guy's like, yeah, I didn't know what to get you. It's like, thanks, man. <laughs> he knows me, <laughs> but um, but so yeah, but um, uh, but the Bic lighter, the whole science behind the Bic lighter, just to we're talking about busting myths. Um, propane boils, and when I say boils, it boils at forty four below zero. So if it's 44 below zero or above, um, propane will work. It'll boil. You'll get gas out of it. If it's any colder than that, it, it, it's dormant. You, it won't work without heating it up. Butane is the same, only it's 32 degrees. So if it's, if it's below 32 degrees and that lighter's been outside, not in your pocket, it's not going to work. All you got to do is warm it up. And it will work wet. I've proved that. I mean, I've fallen through the ice and pulled my Bic lighter out, and the Bic lighter works. They'll work wet. Nice. So it's just a cheap, inexpensive. I mean, if you're gonna if you're gonna head out into the woods, just throw a, throw a lighter in your pocket. I mean, I don't leave the house without it mm-hmm. ever. No, you I think know, it's it's a, that's a great, great yeah. advice. That, yeah. Again, people should always have a way to light a fire. Like, yeah. And I've seen people. Uh, you know, I don't want to kind of poke too much fun at people, oh, but I've ahead. seen guys like, <laughs> oh, here's my here's my survival kit or my everyday carry. And I saw one guy on a video years ago, and it was like a fifty a fifty pound backpack full of stuff. Oh yeah. And I'm like, there's no way this guy carries this thing everywhere. You so, can. But then you think about what, what do you carry everywhere? And for me, if I'm going out, you know, I'll always have matches or lighter. I'll always have a knife. Yeah, I got um, a knife and a lighter and some form of light, flashlight. And yeah. Right now, I use my cell phone as a flashlight. But a knife and a lighter are two things I won't leave the house without. And that's, that's I mean, that doesn't take much to, no, to carry around. I'm um, partial to matches just because that's but, what I've always carried. But yeah. some way to light a fire, matches and but a lighter I, are pretty interchangeable. In yeah, and I'm not going to leave. You know, I mean, we're not going to leave the house with a you know eight inch blade on us. No, I mean, go into the you know, it's just you're just not going to do that. But and nothing smaller than eighteen. Inches. Yeah, and and we get we get back into the whole thing. It's like we can contrive anything. We can go you know we can go make a video how to do this in a survival. But you're not going to have the, the the reality is you're never going to have that stuff with you. Right. And, you know. and it's all, especially in the wintertime when it's really yeah. cold, it's all about efficiency and time. And speed. S- speed, yeah. So, yeah. like, if I, someone, I use this on courses a lot, this scenario. Like, if we're out walking and somebody busts through the ice, mm-hmm. soaks their clothing, uh, and it's 20 below with a big wind, that's not the time to prance around the forest looking for bow drill wood. That's the time to, like, 55-gallon drum of diesel, light it, you know. Anything, any any way, shape, or form, get a fire going. Yeah, yeah. a big short circuit of battery, fire. whatever you have to do. Yeah, because yeah. you got what fifteen minutes? Bare, maybe yeah, not I mean, even that. I've seen, not at twenty below. Yeah, yeah, especially with the the cold, wet wind. No, yeah. even even with wool. I mean, and then and then we get into the clothing. I mean, what are you wearing out there? You know, are you wearing? Um, yeah, you know, of course, everyone knows wool retains what eighty percent of its insulation or something like that and depending on the wool yeah old school wool is different than new school because now all we have all the new blends and stuff so i think it's lost some of its insulation but you're still better off than you know a carhartt jacket right i mean you get wet in a carhartt jacket you you are not going to wear that thing dry no i mean it's going to either freeze solid or it's going to just that cotton is just going to suck the heat out of you right and it's, it's relentless i like to uh um, you know, I think Mother Nature has come up with the best thing, so I like to mimic what Mother Nature's done. So I'll rent a gorilla costume <laughs> from the place in town, and I'll wear that out. And, and then you get all these Bigfoot sightings. People are claiming. Yeah, we just saw a squirrel climbing up a tree. <laughs> I just I ate two of those last night. Nice. We but, have uh, some really fat squirrels right oh, here. Oh, dude! It, and uh, I'm actually doing a video on it, but um, uh, 
these are the biggest squirrels I've seen, and they're loaded with fat. Yeah. I mean, these things are huge. I mean, I, I took pictures and put them on Instagram, and everybody's like, wow, I thought they were rabbits. I mean, for some reason, we got some rogue squirrels around here. I mean, they're getting big. Yeah. They're getting aggressive. I, I'm, I, the squirrel apocalypse, it's yeah. coming. I mean, I've got, I'm carrying my bear cat now as a sidearm <laughs> when I go out to the woodpile. Because I don't know. It's going gonna, it's gonna to come to a point where they're going to realize it's like, I can take him. Yeah. They're, they're yeah. almost that ready. big. I'm ready. We had a red squirrel uh, a few years ago. We had a winter camp. We were camped somewhere up near the field school in northern Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, camped somewhere for about five straight days. Mm-hmm. So we had, often in the winter, we'll, uh, peanut butter and jelly is a great easy lunch. It's easy to thaw. So we had those squeezable jellies. Yeah. Uh, but it was really cold out. So someone picked it up, squeezed it, and the plastic container broke. Right? So, and we had like little pieces of plastic in it. So we're like, oh, I guess we're not going to try to salvage it it was you know three quarters gone anyway and there's all the plastic and so we just put it down forgot about it so this red squirrel gets into it and then the thing it's all hopped up on sugar and it is like standing there defending the broken jelly jar i'm not kidding it was like standing there like daring you to come at it right like it yeah so that that level of tenacity if that thing was bigger it would be the most frightening animal in the world well it's funny because that's what i told randy uh randy because we had one that i mean it was it's a long story but uh it didn't go down easy and i told him it's like pound for pound man these things are apex predators oh god yeah if they were 250 pounds it's like forget it yeah you know just imagine them like running up and down skyscrapers in new york city it would be they would be bad But anyway, with those teeth and those claws, can you imagine? And that attitude, the red—I mean, the grays are more docile because they're not territorial. But the reds, oh, they're—they're—they're vicious, vicious, vicious little buggers. But yeah, so back to, so but being out in the winter, (laughs) the winter time. So I would have, I think, what skill level should you have before you venture into the wilderness? As much as you possibly can. What should you know how to do? I I think fire. Fire is number one. Not just carry a lighter or matches, but know how to actually light a fire in vacuum. Well, here's exactly. I mean, and you know, you can have all the fire starter you want, but if you don't, I mean, say fire starter, if you had a, like a lighter or matches or whatever, if you have nothing, if you have no fuel. Okay. And now where are we? Are we talking New Hampshire, uh, which is typically wet? Yeah, you know, soaking wet. Are we New Mexico? Are you in Colorado, um, where things tend to be drier? But you know, you get up in the North Woods of Maine. Sometimes it's pretty hard to find tinder. We had a year. I think it was like 2012. Mm-hmm. So we're getting ready to do a, a, a two week winter course, um, and it warms up to like 50 degrees, and we get an inch of rain. Oh boy! And then the cold front comes through, and it's like 25 below. So not only is everything soaked, but there's a... It's sealed. It's sealed. There's a quarter inch of ice on everything. And then when you get through the ice, everything is totally soaked. So I just remember like having a wood stove, building a big shelter, putting a wood stove in it, and like not being able to get warm because there was so much moisture in all of the wood that it just sucked up all the BTUs. And that happens. You know, even like, you know, you can like birch bark will burn wet, but how much, you know, it doesn't last long. Right, you know, I, and I've actually seen it so wet and compromised that you couldn't light yeah, it with a match. That's that's tough too. Um, that happens. So it's it's a question of I guess I get you know what it really is. It's it, what it comes down to is is situational awareness. If I said that right, situational awareness as to where are you going. You know what are we in northern Maine? Are we in here? Okay, what what's out there for for natural resources? If you get into a a scenario like if you're going out on a snow machine trip, you should have snowshoes, a shovel, and uh, probably you know extra gasoline you know uh, those there's certain things that 
if you're talking, you know, but if you're going out like on a day hike and a snowshoe trip and you're going out, let's say four or five miles, I mean, that's, that's enough to get into some trouble. Yeah. I mean, that's the, I mean, the, one of the awesome things about winter is also one of the more, da- more dangerous things is that because fewer people recreate in the winter, I mean, like a, a 25 acre wood lot right next to a town, you mm-hmm. get out in the middle of that in the wintertime and it's like you're in the middle of the wilderness. Well, yeah. So, and, and, you know, you twist your ankle there, you're not mobile, you're, that's, yeah. that might be it for you. Yeah. Or, you know, you could be, flip oh. side, you could be the middle of Labrador, you know, the end of the road in northern Quebec and, and whatever. But, but yeah, so it makes those small areas of woods that much more remote yep. because of the cold. Well, the- it's interesting. That's why Mount Washington is one of the most dangerous places in the world because you can drive up from Boston, park your car, and in two hours you can hike into a life or death situation. Yeah, I always like to say that, uh, I think it was 1986 or 96, before 96, remember there was that one movie where, that one day where all those guys died on Everest Everest in one day. Into thin air, yeah. Before that day, Washington was the deadliest mountain in the world. Yep. So now it's, I think it's number two, because you can, you can leave your office, you can leave your apartment in Boston at 10 Mm a.m., be at the base camp at noon, and be dead by one. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that's pretty efficient. That's a very efficient mountain. <laughs> yeah, that's a disposal system. <laughs> but yeah, into thin air. Uh, that the Everest tragedy. That was um, uh, May of ninety six. Yeah, um, ninety six. Yeah, ninety six. So we're talking twenty two years ago. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't seem that doesn't seem possible. Krakow wrote a really good book about that. Right. Yeah. Into thin air. Um, but yeah, no. So but so you know, I guess the best the, the best. Just preparedness. I mean, think about where you're going. Are you walking out on the ice? Like today, okay, good example. Looking out onto that. Boy, that ice looks safe. Yeah. It's got a nice little layer of snow insulating it all the way across. Well, you're sitting here. Well, geez, that was open water yesterday. Now, all of a sudden, somebody shows up to the camp on, you know, it's Monday. We're here for the week. It's like, oh, good. The ice is in. Let's fire up the sleds. Yeah. That's what happens. You know, it looks... Oh they've, oh, they've been ice fishing for two weeks. I've been on social media. There's six inches of ice. Yeah, on Beach Pond. Mm-hmm. Or in some tiny little cove. Right. As so, a, you know, you get misinformed. You get a little cocky here for the week. What could possibly happen? And you fire up the sled, and then you're in 30 feet. You're at the bottom of 30 feet of water. And, I mean, that's... So, you know, think about what you're doing and just be as prepared as possible. Um, I don't have a snow machine anymore. I used to, but I just, to me, it's... Um, just not my thing anymore, but a lot of people are into it. Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, you get out some of these machines, they'll run, you know, you're running 80 miles an hour and, you know, in a couple of hours, you can be, you can be quite a ways away from help. Yes. You know. On the Allagash this summer, I met a, we were on Eagle Lake and uh, some folks came up who were fishing, an elderly couple, and they were talking about how their son came up there from, uh, came up from Millinocket in one day, rode all the way up to Churchill Dam, uh, and and back so you know 60 miles maybe on the trails oh yeah some of those trails networks are incredible but They're, i mean you know if you're if you're two miles away and you don't have snowshoes and you break down like that's a that's going to be a hard day well they teach you you know they uh, the guides will tell you the main guides will tell you it's like never go out on a snow machine without a shovel snowshoes extra gasoline and a come along right you know i mean how many people have one of those things <laughs> Yeah, exactly. You no, know, they've got a, a, a you know eighteen pack of natty ice and and a cell phone. Well, in a cell phone, and we're going to stop. We're going to grab a steak anyway at so and so's. You know, we'll just pull into there and get something to eat. It's just kind of, uh, and you know, unfortunately, there are enough people usually, uh, but you can, you know, there's usually if you get into trouble, someone will come along. But 
you can still get into a lot of trouble out, especially like up in um, the area we're talking about, up in um, uh, around Bozbuck. You know, there are, now this this you've heard of the mountain sleds. Yeah. All right, those are the new phenomenon. I mean, but you need two feet of powder to run those things. So what guys are doing now is they're going off trail and whatever. But the timber companies are, or the uh, the forestry is having an issue because they're taking the tops of the the, the little trees off with these, these, these mountain sleds because right. they're just running everywhere. They're coming off trail, which didn't used to be a problem, but now everybody everybody is like off trail because they want to be in that powder and they can horse around, but they're actually ruining the trees. So that, that's that's becoming an issue. Right, because, I mean, the, the, the rule is we're not, as guides, as, as recreators, we are not allowed to damage live no. trees. No, 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 at all. At all. No, period. And so, that's part of the like part of the grand bargain of, of opening the land to keeping it open for recreation mm-hmm. is follow these rules, and now those rules are being violated. Yeah, and it, I guess it was always, you know, there, there was always, there have been issues before, but now with this new phenomenon of these mountain sleds, because, um, you, you know, you go on YouTube or whatever, and you see these guys out in Colorado, and they're just running up, they just, it's wild. I mean, they got, but they got, they got, <clears throat> Those mountains will handle it. You know, they're they're they've got they've got this they've got twenty feet of snow. Um, but you know, you get up in northern Maine, you want to do the same thing. But what you're actually doing is you, you're running up a, a hillside that was clear cut two years ago, not clear cut, but mechanically thinned. <laughs> but they've put they've put new trees in. Yeah. Okay. So they've got little trees that are trying to come up, but they, you go over the top of them with those sleds, and you destroy and so you, you're you're destroying someone's investment. Right. Yeah. I mean, it would be analogous an to going out and like. I don't know, riding your four-wheeler over all the baby cows in Texas. It's it's kind of an analogy, yeah. yeah. Or like you take a dirt bike and drive out through somebody's cornfield. There you and go. And spin it up. It's kind of the same thing. People, well, the thing is, people don't realize they're doing it. Yeah. You know, because they see all that powder and they say, well, who cares? We're up in northern Maine, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Well, people want to have a good time. And, and you know, I don't think, yeah. I, I honestly don't think that there are well, that's, maybe more than a handful of people who would maliciously do it if they realized the impact they were having. Oh yeah, no, that's, that, you're right. I think I think um, people are. I, I believe people are generally good. Yeah, I mean everybody gets out and what. I mean, here's the thing: as soon as you straddle a, 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 an internal combustion engine, it changes who you are. We behave differently. A two-stroke <laughs> makes it worse. Oh yeah. So it's like you know that combination. You're out with your friends. It's like people just raise hell with them, and um, you know, and yeah, I think yeah, like you say, you know, nine out of ten people, if you say, hey, you know, we shouldn't be over there doing that because you know we're destroying the the trees and the paper companies are going to shut the trails down. It's like, oh, man, I'm sorry. You know, there's a few people that would say, who cares? But yeah. I think it's minimal. Um, but that is becoming an issue. Yeah. I've yeah. actually read about that. About, yeah. they, you know, the people are upset yeah. about it. And-, and the other thing was snowshoes, because a lot of people are into snowshoeing, and they'll, they'll spend 350 bucks on a pair of snowshoes and think they're bulletproof. Um, but those bindings still break. Right. So if you're going to go snowshoeing, I'm sure you have paracord or something. You've you got to be able to fix your bindings. Correct. Because if you're in, like, two miles out in the woods, you've tried to walk on one snowshoe. Yeah. It's difficult. It's very difficult. <laughs> and it's, you know, If you only have one, it's more like a raft. <laughs> exactly. So if you're going on, you know, if you're out recreating on snowshoes, which is awesome. I love to see people do that. Um, but, you know, you've got to, even if you've got really expensive snowshoes, those, those, those can still break. Yes. And I've seen it happen many times. So that's something to think about. It all comes down to preparedness and skill level. Get as much skill and information as you possibly can. And if you're on the internet, take everything with a grain of salt. You know, because or what? or perhaps multiple grains of salt. Perhaps a, a tablespoon of salt. Yes. <laughs> you know where that saying came from? No. Back in the, the old day, the Roman days, um, 
they used to, uh, when you wanted to get rid of somebody, poisoning was a very common way to, to, it's like, well, we need him taken out of power. Let's you know, put something in his wine. And, you know, sure enough, he died. What happened? I don't know. He drank his wine and got sick. Well, he was poisoned. And there was a belief by the Romans that if you took salt with poison, it would take the poison away and you could tough it out. So if you thought someone was going to poison you, you would take some salt just to ward off the poison. And in the modern day, if you go to like a bar, people will do the salt with the tequila. Yeah. Because that stuff's poison. <laughs> oh, in my case, yes. <laughs> but uh, that's where they came from. Yeah. From, from the old... Uh, so, so take it with a grain of salt, meaning it could be poison. I love old sayings like that. Yeah. that and I, there's so many of them that I use that I don't have any idea what they mind actually your own, mean. Mind your own beeswax? Yeah. Like, I don't know what they mean. I don't know where they came from. Like, I don't know, shepherd analogies from the Bible. Like, I've never been a shepherd. What would I... You know, you need no, to... shepherd's pie. Carry your something about your flock or yeah again like we use these analogies and sort of bits of language that don't mean anything to us we what, don't even understand but they're just you know the common usage but but we don't even know where they came from yeah i think there was a passage in pulp fiction about that where blessed is he who shepherds the weak through the valley of darkness for he is truly his brother's keeper and the finder of lost children that, sam jackson about the shep- yeah samuel jackson you actually said samuel jackson not samuel adams yeah, because that's what that's what you that's what we usually call him. <laughs> you remember Sam Adams? I was like, no, it's Sam, Samuel Jackson. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so that's off on a tangent. But yeah, no, but I, I agree wholeheartedly that people should uh, get out there and definitely with snowshoes, learn how to make your bindings. Like if you're relying on a fancy yes. binding without uh, that that relies on plastic catches and different friction ties, that's a bad thing to be relying on because I've seen those things break lots of times. So and in cold weather, especially yes, the worst plastic, the conditions yeah. when you really need them, that's when they're more yeah. most likely to break. So if you ever want to come out with us, uh, come on out and we'll show you a couple of different ways to make a binding out of a piece of rope. Yeah, and actually, um, you got a, some good demonstration on that. Uh, you're talking about when you twist your foot into it. Yeah, that's slick as all get out. You don't have to. Get, I mean, you can actually put it on without even bending over. Yeah. Yeah, that's a pretty good pretty good way to go. And it's simple. It's very simple. Yep. I mean, but like most things, you know, the, the simpler the the simpler the outfit, the more care needs to be well, that's done true. in yeah. using it. So it, it's not designed to like clip in and then you can run up. Yep. I love that every time I see like a picture of somebody snowshoeing on like a magazine, they're always head to toe spandex. Their snowshoes are like one size bigger than their boot. And one snowshoe's coming up with this powder just dropping <laughs> off. It's like, where do these people go snowshoeing? We don't have conditions like that. Yeah. And, and like <laughs> I've seen people wear those little snowshoes on, try to be out in like the woods with them where yeah. the, you know, the drifts are eight feet deep and they just disappear. Oh, oh yeah. They and they're like, right the, the snowshoe is one inch bigger than their boot. Exactly. So, you it, know, it's it, basically cleats. It provides no yeah. flotation at all. I when I first because I I fought the guy that taught me how to trap actually had a pair of old um, snowcrafts. Remember okay. those made in Bangor? They made the military. They actually made military snowshoes that were ash. I don't remember snowcraft. Those. Yeah, I still have a pair that my friend Rick gave uh, got off my buddy Rick. But um, he had manu- he had uh, made a pair of bindings out of inner tubes. Mm-hmm. Yep, slick. Slick as heck. Yeah. And then um, it took, because I grew up like you would, we really liked the traditional ways. But when I get into mountaineering, you know, traditional snowshoes don't work above tree line. No. Or on like 45 degree pitches. Correct. So you have to, when you're up in that environment, you got, you have to have snowshoes with you that'll work. So I got, I went out, I bought a pair of tubs with the, at the time they were called RCS bindings, which I don't know what that meant, but. They were literally like crampons. You could almost ice climb in those things. Huh. And they had a metal hinge that to this day hasn't broken. 
But since that, I've seen multiple brands of those high-tech snowshoes come out with these plastic bindings. And, I mean, two hours into the trip, a buckle breaks. Right, and it's, it's, a, it's a Rube Goldberg device of yeah. infinite complexity with 80 moving parts. Yeah, and then, exactly. It's like, uh, it's like, and then you try to forget about trying to get them off. I mean, they get these little plastic clips that go in these teeth, and they just fill up with ice, and, and they have issues. Um, and like you say, nine out of ten times, they're too small. Yeah. You know, they're too small. Like, you put a put a 50-pound pack on. I mean, you know, I'm, you know, we're, we're not petite by any means, but, you know, but say we're 260 pounds with a pack. I mean, you need a good-sized snowshoe. Yeah. You know, um, but in the old tradition, unfortunately, we just don't have the conditions anymore for the... Uh, we don't have powder on the ground for very long. No. And most of the time when we go out, those what I call technical snowshoes are actually better because, you know, you can walk on crust and stuff like that. But um, So they have their advantages, but even though you've spent $350 on your snowshoes, don't put your, don't trust your life with them. I mean, you, you need to learn how to make bindings or, or at least some way to get, get back. Yeah, and I'm a, I'm also a big fan yep. in uh, know how to make a pair of improvised snowshoes if you have a few feet of snow oh, absolutely, in your pocket. Yeah. Like, just yeah. those little things. We had a... Years ago, like, my son was just born, so it was like uh, 2005, I think. We had a TV show come here to, to New Hampshire, and we shot for uh, several days. And they, you know, they, it was in March, so the snow was super deep. And it was one of those years where it was like waist-deep snow in the woods. Mm-hmm. And the guy, the director, wanted me and the sort of the, the star to walk through the woods, like, no snowshoes. And I'm like, are you serious? And I was just, you know, what a disaster. Oh, but man. Yeah. we had to walk uh, 30 yards, 30 yards maybe, and it took me like 20 minutes because you're up to your waist every step. You can't do it. It's just brutal. Yeah. Like, you know, anyway. And the, the, poles, the poles are nice too. You know, you know the ski poles. Mm-hmm. Are, um, so a lot of people like those. Those are nice. If you, Especially if you've got a pack, you know, you can. it, it helps you stabilize a little bit. But, but I guess my, my long-winded point is just that when the snow is deep to try to get by without snowshoes, oh, it. don't even yeah. bother. Which is why I can say, if you're going out, you know, extended backcountry on a snow machine, you should have snowshoes with you. Right, Something. for sure. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Because if the machine breaks, you've got to walk. You, you, if you're on the trail, that's fine. But depending, you know, like I say, you can, what if you're out in a snowstorm? Right. Up in northern Maine, you can get a foot of snow in six hours. And if you, you know, you're walking along, even if you're walking on the track that you pack down, you know, mm-hmm. you you slip a little bit off it, you punch through six feet, twist your ankle. Like, that's not a good day. Yeah, or overextend your knee or something. Yeah. I've done that. Yeah, me too. Or post hole. Yeah. That, that's a... That's Sucks. Any of, it does suck. Yeah, it took <laughs> like three months to get over that. But So anyway, yeah, so back to the... How much skill do you need? As much as you can possibly learn. Yeah. <laughs> Never underestimate uh, what can happen out there. Agreed, wholeheartedly. Yep. Well, I think we've been going for quite a while here. Oh, What? Usually takes me that long to stop talking. <laughs> <laughs> We're not even halfway through the list. Yeah. What know. else do we want to delve into here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, Myths? Yeah, let's just do the quick myth thing. Um, oh, was there something else before that? There was a whole bunch of stuff, but I think we've had a pretty good discussion about okay. other things that are interesting. Sure. But, but just, yeah, winter myths. And before we hit the record button, we you and I were discussing the the what I believe to be an old wives' tale about hot water freezes faster than cold water. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And you made a very good explanation of the science of why that is, but I still have trouble wrapping well, my head around it. The, the, in a nut, um, when, you, when water boils or heats up, it breaks down the molecular structure, and it 
then there freezes. It just freezes quicker. It's just it uh, solidifies quicker. Um, in a, another a, a example, like if you, we talked about if you make ice, if you boil water and then freeze it, mm-hmm. it it dries crystal clear and it makes for really nice looking ice for cocktails and stuff. But if you just freeze ice out of the tap, it's white. It has air in it. And so heating up water, it's just it's breaking down the molecular structure. And I'm not obviously a scientist or physics or anything but um i'm no scientologist i'm no scientologist <laughs> but i know and and, and I'll, I'll tell you from being doing uh you know thawing pipes for 33 years under people's houses hot water always freezes first and it's just that it's that simple so it's not a myth it is true right I, and i'm thank you for educating me because i've always thought of it from the perspective of it would take that much longer to cool yeah. So I don't think I educated you. I may have pointed you in the right direction. And that's all I can do. Edumacate. <laughs> Edumacate. You got me some edumacation. Edumacation, yep. Uh, what, so what's another myth? Another myth, and this is definitely a myth, that if you start to get loose feeling in your fingers, like basic frost nip, take off your mitts and rub snow on it. That's, a, that's a really bad idea. Oh, yeah. No, you don't want to do that. Um, and the same token, you don't want to run them under hot water either. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, of course, if you have hot water, you're probably not freezing your fingers off. Well, you could because that hot water is going to freeze faster than any other water. Yes. <laughs> See? This all ties together. You're absolutely right. It's a but... circle of life. It's all right. That's a good question. Thing. So what do you do? And, uh, like, uh, you've been out for, you know, whatever, and all of a sudden you realize it's like you take your gloves off and you've got white fingertips. You know what that means? Yeah. What does it mean? I don't know. You're the white collar woodsman. <laughs> yeah, white collar woodsman. But so now you've got you got some frostbite set. Yeah, or frost nip anyway. Frost nip. Yeah. But it's it's the start of a really serious problem. So the I mean on trips I see it a lot, and especially if you're the walking face. into a headwind, yeah, the face like yeah. areas that aren't covered, which is basically just your face. And then on really bad trips, we had one a few years ago. We still call it the the uh, squaw pan death march. And I got together with a good friend of mine, Adam Logie, the other day. And we were, he and I had to walk like six miles into this like 40 mile an hour wind. It was 20 below. We had zero exposed flesh. And, you know, we had cut face masks mm-hmm. out of a foam pad. And like literally any exposed flesh would have frozen in like three seconds. Bad. It was bad. Um, yeah. But so every like, I don't know, every two or three minutes we'd stop, face away from the wind. I'd check his face. He would mm-hmm. check mine. So, yeah, if you start to, you start to develop... Uh, little cold spots and it looks white and it doesn't move like when your face moves it's basically the the liquid in your skin freezing and crystallizing so you you you'd want to get it when it's in that really beginning stage so what i would do what we did take off a mitt get a nice warm hand on that piece of flesh slowly bring it back up to temperature yeah Yeah, but if it's your fingers that's and you're wearing mitts that's a bigger problem because you're you're not insulating yourself adequately so you have to um, so you, yeah, because your core's you, it, like all. That's the first. Your toes and fingers freeze first, anyway. Yeah, because it's furthest from the core. Yeah. So if you think of your body, the your body knows to try to maintain your internal organs in your brain, and it will sacrifice your extremities to do so. Mm-hmm. So the you know what do you do in that situation? Well, you either get out of the wind, get out of the cold, and build a fire, warm up. Or, you know, get out of the cold and exercise like hell. And hopefully if you're out of the wind, then your insulative layers are enough to keep in the heat. To Try to get your hands under your armpits or something? Or yeah, something start like warming that. you up. Pull your hands in. Uh, if you're wearing gloves, take off the gloves. Put on mitts so your fingers, you know, your finger, your hands stay warmer in mittens than they do in gloves because all the fingers help keep each other warm. Yeah, and the other thing about being out in the cold, a lot of people, and I'm, I'm probably guilty of this too, but... Um, a lot of people don't drink enough water when it's cold. Very true. That will 
get you in serious trouble because it's physically hard to drink cold water when you're cold. Right. You don't want to do it. But that causes problems. Yeah, huge know. problems. As you get more dehydrated, your yeah. blood gets thicker. Exactly. It's less efficient at getting the heat from your core out to your extremities, so you start to get cold that way. And there yeah. are other, like, medical things. There's something called cold diuresis mm -hmm. that as you get colder your body will shunt circulation to your extremities and that increases the blood pressure in your core and you pee more as a result mm -hmm. so one of the old things is you know drink so that you pass you pee a, a quart of water yeah. a day but that would which, be like a counter indicator of which, that which leads <clears throat> us to another myth is that if you don't have any water you can just eat snow and let it melt in your mouth you you well you you can do that well i was told you can't so is that a myth that I'd, you can't eat snow? I would say that's a myth. <laughs> I would say that's a myth. <laughs> because people say that if you put snow in your mouth and let it melt, that you're, um, uh, what was the chemical, uh, did something. But it dehydrates you. It makes you more thirsty. Mm, I don't know. Like so, I, when I Because I've done it. I've eaten a lot of fresh powder snow, and I never had an issue. Me neither. So I was on that TV show a few years ago where they dropped me off in Norway on top of a mountain. You're uh, on a TV show? Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> But I didn't have any water. There's no liquid water. And if I didn't hydrate somehow, so I was walking across this basically snowpack for two days, and I yeah. just, you make little snowballs and you eat them. Yeah. Uh, and I've seen um, a lot of times if you've got a water bottle, like an algae with a big wide mouth, if you've got, if you're down to like half a jug, half of half a, um, uh, half a bottle, throw a little snow in there and yeah. let it melt in the water. Yeah. Don't turn it to slush. And then, you know, you put that... Put that back inside and keep it warm. Yeah, put, put, it it under your your, put it under your yeah. jacket or something. And a lot of technical jackets now, or um, a lot of jackets have big inside pockets. So carry your water where it's not going to freeze. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. You have a good insulated water bottle. There's several methods of doing it. But if, you, if you, you think that, well, geez, I've only got like half a liter of water, and I could probably drink a liter and a half, just start adding a little bit of snow and let it melt. Yeah. And keep it, you know, I mean, it'll get you, it'll buy you a little bit. What they say, what they used to say in the old survival books was that it'll cool you to a certain extent. So if you're cold and shivering, don't eat snow because it's going to yeah. make that condition worse. But like in my example, if we're out on an expedition, we're hauling toboggans, like you get hot. Oh, man. So if you're overheating as it is, that's a good way to stay cool. Just every, you know, every 20 steps, a little handful of snow in the mouth. And then you yeah. don't have to rely on drinking and trying to maintain maintaining liquid water in bitter cold conditions without insulated water bottles and such it's not easy no it's it's, it's almost impossible yeah it's a big pain in the neck yeah and, I, and you know again we learned that like when we were winter camping although we did a lot of mountaineering um i mean you're carrying a 60 pound pack which is basically four days worth of food and like a couple liters of water but i mean you use that for dinner so you know with your however you cook your meals or whatever but so you basically have to be able to melt snow with a with a with a rocket stove, which kind of uh, you know for for short money, you can get one of those little like MSR whisper whisper jets, uh, not whisper jets, uh, uh, whisper rocket, light, whatever they are. I mean, they fit in the palm of your hand, right? And they screw on on top. Of, I mean, as a as an emergency, and it doesn't take much to carry one of those around and a little pan made of unobtainium or some <laughs> some some really expensive thing. It's got to be some rare earth metal. But what would it take? <laughs> what would it take though, just to you know. Turn, you know, screw that thing on the top of a can of isopropane. isopropane. I don't, I'm, I'm not an advocate for using that stuff, but in an emergency, yeah. it's, it's, not, it's, it's better than the alternative. So if you've got a pan and a little stove that, that weighs, the combination of it weighs, you know, a few ounces, um, you know, it's a good way to make water. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, but you know, again, here we go. You know how you know we're going. How many people are going to go out for a four-hour snowshoe hike? A three-hour tour. Yeah, and I, take and take a stove with them. I saw a documentary about a three-hour <laughs> tour on, I think, Hawaii that went bad. The people the that boat was a, that sank, documentary. And they it was got a documentary. stuck Gilligan, on an island. Yeah, Gilligan's. Yeah, something I can't remember. I watched it. Was a yeah. I, I remember watching that when I was a kid. Yeah. Um, but a lot can happen in three hours. Yeah, as Gilligan found out. <laughs> yeah. You can get stranded on an island with a couple of hot chicks. Yeah. But that's not the case with... It wouldn't happen to me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, so yeah, I guess it all comes back down to just being prepared. So was there another myth that you were... Uh, not really. Usually full of them. You usually got like a list, laundry yeah. list. I can never out-myth you. Yeah. Um, no. So that in itself is a myth. <laughs> just the, the eating snow is a myth. The yeah. uh, don't eat snow. Do eat snow, but not if you're really cold. <clears throat> We've determined that hot water does freeze faster than cold water. It will freeze quicker. But it is definitely a myth to rub snow onto frost nip or frostbite. That's a that's a horrible idea. And uh, I've heard that a lot too. I've heard people say that. I've just, seen it. I have old books upstairs yeah. in the bookshelf, and they're like, "Yeah, if you get into trouble, rub snow on it." And, and there had to be. I mean, I, I always like to think that there was probably a good reason why they used well, to explain it that yeah. way. That we just don't have all the information that they had. A good, a good, if, if to, to to satisfy your curiosity, walk outside and wash your hands in the snow and wait about two minutes. Yeah. And see how, and then wash them again in snow. And at that point, you probably couldn't do it a third time because you got to put your hands in your pockets. Right. What's the instinctual thing? Okay, if you, and I've done this working at people's houses, like I got to wash my hands, so I wash my hands in the snowbank. Now it's like, geez, my hands are freezing. I instinct, I immediately put them in my pockets. So if you get frosty fingers get them in your pockets or get them under your armpits or something get them as close to your core as you can somebody was telling me it was a, a couple of years ago in northern maine they said it was so cold that the politicians had their hands in their own pockets wow <laughs> wow i remember a day it was so i was up in uh northern maine and when someone talked you had to take their breath froze you had to take it inside to hear what they were saying <laughs> That's not a myth? No. <laughs> That's cold, man. <laughs> the fog. Yeah. The coldest I've ever seen. Uh, yeah, like what is the cold? 60 below in the Yukon. Okay, I was going to say, because that wasn't Wolfboro. No, but yeah. you'd spit and it would hit the ground as ice. I never did the thing. You can see him on YouTube where the guy's like a pan so, of hot water, water and you chuck it up in the air. And, yeah. Yeah, I didn't Look, do that. 40 below is the coldest I've ever seen. I was, and I saw it two days in a row. Um, and then actually we hit 38 below back, uh, was it 1989 or 35 below? It was almost 40 below because I remember working in propane in, in the propane industry. We were so cold we actually took liquid propane and poured it into a coffee cup and set it on the back of the truck and it sat there like a glass of water. Wow. That's how cold it was. That's pretty so cold. So it was pretty close to 44 below. Okay. Yeah. That's just cold. You know, fortunately around here those temperatures don't last long. But And they seem to be fewer and farther between like the – yeah. Yeah, I mean, now it's like, you know, 20 below is cold. And, you know, it's not, you know, whether it's 5 degrees or 20 below, I mean, it's cold. Yeah. I mean, it's dangerous. I mean, when you get down in the single numbers, it's it's dangerously cold. For me, 20 below is that changeover point where things just start, weird stuff starts happening, right? Like, like stuff tree, just starts breaking. And trees snap without yeah. the wind blowing. Like last year, we had an ice storm, and then it was really cold, and I went to open the door on the truck to get my daughter in, and the handle just comes yep. off in my hand. And, yep. you know, stuff extreme. like that. It's just that weird... Because it's, 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 it's stressing. That's when your snowshoe binding is going to break. Right. If they're plastic. plastic snowshoes. Or, that's a good example. Or any of the sort of high-tech gear in those yep. bitter cold conditions. 
Yep. If it's if it's that if you know if the material gets brittle in the cold, that's when everything's going to start falling apart. Because it's bringing it to close to an extreme. Yeah, yeah. and that's kind of the yeah. you know the the type of expeditioning we do with traditional gear. Mm-hmm. You know, let's minimize the number of moving pieces and moving parts. Yeah. Well, that's a good example. Like if you, you a pair of those high, uh, technical snowshoes probably wouldn't work. There's a good chance it wouldn't they wouldn't work on one of your expeditions. We've, we've had people bring them. I mean, they work, but it's just... They, they, but what do you do if something happens? There are a lot of negatives to it. Well, yeah. one of the things we do on the expedition is everybody has to build a pair of primitive improvised Primitive's, snowshoes yeah. and spend 24 hours on them. So yeah. the, with the idea being that, yeah, everybody's... Or lots of people have seen pictures of these things, but, you know, sort of like if you build a shelter, you don't know anything about it until you sleep in it. You don't know anything about making primitive oh, snowshoes until you go walk on them for a day and you don't... Yeah. I mean, if you if you build them and then walk well, twenty feet, say, "Oh, they work!" Like you well, still know nothing about. Yeah, them. I mean, I, I think my first pair, I think they were almost about twenty inches wide each one of them. How do you think those work? Yeah, great, I bet. <laughs> I didn't sink, but I couldn't walk, <laughs> and that's when I learned it's like these things need to be longer and narrower. Right, and that's how I kind of fell in love with the old pickle design. Yep, um, they're, they're probably my favorite, and the snowcrafts that I have are pretty much they got a really high nose. Uh-huh. Um, just a just a great old pair of snowshoes. I just wish we had the the conditions. Yeah, well, hopefully we'll get a... Yeah, maybe. I'm looking forward to three and a half weeks, or actually four and a half weeks on the snowshoe trail this winter, and I'm really hoping we get some nice, consistent cold weather. Because life in the winter, the worst thing, you know, we talk about it's cold, it's dangerous if it's cold, but it's so pleasant when it's consistently cold that the worst thing is the big thaw where it'll warm up and rain. Like, that's awful in the winter yeah that makes for miserable conditions. because then you're you can't you're not mobile anymore it's awful no that's what they're talking about this year is they're talking above depends who you talk to but the gist is it's going to be above average temperatures but above average precipitation so it's going to do like hover around freezing and like rain every day <sighs> that'll make for a real awful <laughs> it'll make for a luge it's well it's like the weather <laughs> is like schizophrenic right yeah. and, and then and then the 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 front will come through and then it'll be 60 mile an hour winds and 30 below for 25 hours and then it'll be 45 and rain and yeah. so i don't know i'd like the i like the consistent cold that's ideal for me in the winter but we never seem to get it for very long anymore no it's not in, not in new england uh, or i don't know it what other what 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 part of the world does have stable conditions anymore yeah exactly realistically the arctic I mean, is going crazy yeah they had to move yeah. the Iditarod in Alaska last year. They didn't have any snow in South Central Alaska. Yeah. They had to move the course up. Un- Can you imagine? We have a we had a, a student, a young woman, a great young lady who's going to be with us uh, on our Cree trip, but she lives in Homer, Alaska, yep. and we were talking all about the just the crazy weather they've been having the last few years. Yeah, no I, snow, no snow in Alaska. Yeah, I've got some friends on um, on Instagram that are a couple of them from Alaska, and I they, they keep me updated with. They got some pretty crazy weather patterns going. Yeah, um, which is affecting the fisheries. It's affecting it affects everything. Right. You know, it, it's yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think we've crossed the threshold. They're trying to get things back to what it used to be. It'll be an interesting few years. But you know, we're basing it on what the last hundred years. I mean, what's that? That's a drop in the bucket. Maybe maybe it's not that unordinary. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> well, we'll we'll never know. Written history goes back what like thirty. 3,500 years or so. And uh, the, in most parts of the world, I mean, you can yeah, find some places yeah. where it's longer. Anatomically, modern humans mm-hmm. have been around, they, the current research I've read, 350,000 years. So our history 
Yeah. Human history, written history, yeah. is 1% of the human experience on the planet. So we don't know what happened before. I mean, they can, they can, the smart guys that go drill cores in Greenland and stuff can get pretty good ideas as to what the climate was doing years you ago. You gotta have, you gotta be pretty smart to drill in England, uh, Greenland. I think so, yeah. You like, just like, I couldn't just go there and start drilling. I couldn't even find the place. Well, it's green. It's Greenland, not Greenland, New Hampshire. <laughs> oh, yeah, well, because I've been there. <laughs> I've been there too. And I can't drill there. I've, I've tried to drill holes there. No, they don't like that. But, um, uh, well, how long did the Neanderthals stick around? They were here for... They, uh, they're saying up, up till the last Ice Age, I think. They, they, they had a good run. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, we're, you know the thing is, you know, uh, getting off on another tangent, um, but... That's what we do. That's what we do. But uh, you think about <laughs> most, of the, most of the catastrophic change has really been since World War II. Yeah. You know, I mean... After we start, you know, when the agriculture, when the agriculture faded off, or I say the agriculture, but like when, when the home farms started disappearing and people depended on frozen foods and cattle industry to keep them fed and then transportation and World War, really since World War Two, and it's only, that's only, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago, 80 years ago, I don't know. But less than three hundred and fifty thousand. I'm not. Yeah. I'm not a math guy. No, but no. Less but it's than three hundred. We've 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 made quite an impact in the last, let's say, fifty years. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, you, well, you talk to old-timers, or you read the old books, and somebody would have a root cellar, and that was going to keep your, your game and your garden oh, from last yeah. summer to next year. I grew up with but, a root cellar. But now it's, yeah. you know, people have, what, this grocery stores, they say it's like three days of food. That's what's in the store shelves. Yeah, but, the, and, and again, that wouldn't even, uh, I mean, for, the, for a given demographic. Yeah. Like, like, let's say the IGA has three days worth of food for Wolfboro. Is yep. that a safe comment? Probably, but then what? I don't know. I guess we start making our own. But the donuts. problem is when when what what happens? That's that's under normal usage. Yeah. Okay. So what happens when when everybody panics? They clean off the shelves. That, like every time there's a snowstorm. Yeah. And everybody who's not from here is so, just screaming so nor'easter, nor'easter, right, and yeah. running out with milk. Yeah, and, and and you know, realistically, in the event of a catastrophic emergency, the stores probably have six hours worth of food. Right. You know, because that's we panic. Same with gasoline. Every time it's like, oh my god, you know. But the, um, but you say root cellar. I grew up with a root cellar. Yeah. And that's the way it was. You know, you'd put all your vegetables, um, root vegetables in the, uh, in the cellar. And then, you know, you'd spend all, you know, you do a lot of canning and this and that, but you, you were more self-sufficient and, uh, realistically you didn't depend on much on the, from the outside, except for what electricity you needed and, and gasoline, mm-hmm. you know, whatever. But, but now, you know, no one can, you know, it's just, people can't do anything for themselves. Yeah, we have a running joke about uh, you know if if their phone can't make it work, it's not going to happen. Yeah, it's just it's probably true. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do it. My phone won't work. I was just on the phone on, on the way over here talking to a customer who's 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 unlocking their house from their phone, so I can go in and do some work. Wow! They didn't even have to come to New Hampshire. She just pulled out her phone and. That's pretty cool, though. Yeah. I don't like it. Like I, yeah. I that's a, amazing. I have a visceral it's dislike amazing. to it, but it is yeah. amazing. It's amazing. Oh, you can't, you can't shun it. I mean, it's like it, it is amazing that we have that kind of technology. Yeah, but well, we can put a man on the moon. We can unlock houses with phones. We still, as a culture, as a species, can't make trailer lights that will work two years in a row. No, 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 not even close. <laughs> trailer, <laughs> trailer lights. I don't know. Anyway, we're. 
down. We're going down. We're going down on the tail. It's getting dark. <laughs> it's getting dark. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap it up then. Uh, thank you, Ed, for joining us once oh, again pleasure. and enlightening our our audience. We're always <laughs> happy to have you, uh, yeah. and I hope that uh, hope things slow down a bit for you. So. Oh, it's inevitable. Eventually, things will stop at some point, but I'm not ready for that yet. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And for all of those of you out there in podcast land, thank you for listening to another episode. And if you enjoyed this and think it's useful, spread the word. Tell a friend. Leave us a review. Leave us a star rating on iTunes, something like that. It's always helpful for getting the word out. So thank you very much for listening and have a great day. You have been listening to the Jack Mountain Bushcraft Podcast. For more information on our professional wilderness guide training programs that are college accredited and GI Bill approved, visit us on the web at jackmtn.com.